Hello, everyone, and welcome to M Relay. My name is Jennifer Zelinska, and I'm the associate producer of M Pavilion. Firstly, I'd like to thank the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, whose generous support has made M Relay possible. This is the second session out of a four-part series of M Relay, and it's based around the theme of play. I'd like to introduce Dr. Christian Thompson, who is a contemporary artist and will be hosting the session. Thank you. Um, I just arrived 48 hours ago from London, so I'm very jet-lagged, um, which actually could make for a rather elucidating session. Um, uh, this session is based around the theme of play. Um, what can be learnt from seeing Melbourne as a playground? Recent decades have seen a rise in playful practices in public spaces, ranging from street art to skateboarding to parkour from flash mobs to urban gardening, from performative interventions to location-based digital games. In social frameworks, how can play be used as a tool to promote inclusion and improve and increase life opportunities and boost community morale? Architecturally, how can the concept of play trigger us to rethink about traditional urban infrastructure and address important social issues and challenges by creating new experiences and new situations? How does being playful capture imagination and trigger creative creativity in public spaces? Join us as we explore this inter intersection between social engagement, interpersonal relations, and environments we inhabit. And I'd like to invite Mary Featherston on stage for me to interview you. Hello. Hello, Christian. <laughs> we had an online conversation, but it's good to meet you. And we had, it has to be said, we did have a, a sort of a dry run yesterday. Yeah. So we'll just follow on, I guess, from, from there, because we touched on a whole range of different issues. But I guess maybe just if you could give an introduction to your work and for those people mm. who don't, aren't familiar with your... Mm. Well, I'm Mary Featherston, and I'm um, an interior designer and for many years, I worked with my husband, late husband, Grant Featherston, designing furniture. But uh, in the last two or three decades, particularly, I've specialised in the design of learning environments for young children in the context of uh, schools, but also in informal learning environments in um, cultural venues like the museum or the gallery. Um, I'm... I'm very pleased that we're talking about play today because I think that um, it's sort of around us all the time, isn't it? You know, it's, it's everywhere and all around us, but somehow it flies under the radar. We don't really take it so seriously. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the Bible says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And I think that that's given... Well, certainly in our culture, it's not, not true everywhere, but in our culture it tends to say, well, you know, play is okay, but you, the real thing is work. You know, we tend to make that, that split. Um, my, my real interest in play, and it's been true for a long time, is in the connection between how we play and how we learn. 
And the more I look at it, both in, you know, the more I read about it, the more I observe, I see them as so closely connected. You sort of touched on that yesterday in terms mm. of how you've sort of explored alternative kind of education models and looking specifically at the yeah. idea of play within that context. How does that something that you've arrived at through your own practice? I mean, is that something that you organically kind of mm. encountered or is that something that you actually... Yeah, so it was it was very organic, um, like <laughs> most things in life are. Um, Fifty years ago, my husband and I commissioned the architect Robin Boyd to design a house for us. But it wasn't just a house; it was also where we work. So it includes studio, office, workshop, dark room. But they were all sort of closely interlinked. That's the way we wanted it, and. Um, then when young children started to come into that environment, we realised it was uh, a very novel environment, very playful, and children loved to come into that environment and to play. Um, and, it, and it's also a bit risky, you know, there, might, there are a few people here who know it, and so it involves platforms suspended over a garden, and so there are drops involved, so it's a bit, a bit risky. So as a young parent with these young children coming in and they would be playing, I'd, I'd need to stay close to them. And I knew absolutely nothing about children at that point. I'd grown up as an only child in, in uh, London, knew nothing about children. And so having to stay around them, I was able to observe how they, how they played. And so the interesting thing was, so I was saying to you that... Um, what I noticed was that children became incredibly engaged in what they were doing. First of all, they'd, they'd tear around crazily. They'd explore every nook and cranny. Um, but then they'd settle down and they'd get into a, a game and it would, you know, it could all sorts of play, um, depending on the kids, the age, the time. Um, but they were so deeply engaged and they could stay in the flow of that game for a very long time. Uh, they're also highly imaginative, creative, witty, um, very active. They were you know, learning through all their senses, all these things that cre creative people think are wonderful. And now the corporate sector thinks is very good too. Um, that was all going on. Um, so then it was a deep shock to me when I hit the school system and I couldn't compute the, the, the approach in the school system to children and to learning was at such odds to what I'd observed in a naturalistic way. And I go on observing. One of the, my favourite places to watch children play is in airport lounges. Because as soon as they get bored, and you will have seen this, they develop incredible games. Often they'll draw on sort of traditional play, but... Um, they'll adapt it to the circumstances. So it, um, that's the thing that's driven me, really. You were saying that there's kind of like, um, you know, it's a sort of a one-size-fits-all kind of approach to sort of, um, you know, education models. And that you, for you, it was really interesting to look at how this kind of, I guess, um, experimental model or the use of play within the context of education was something that you 
you know, sought out specifically in Italy and America and what were they, um, you know, how did they sort of speak to you and it, was this sort of like an exchange between your design practice and, or is it purely something that, you know, emerged mm. as a separate no, it was interest part of the, from... Yeah, it was part of the design practice because essentially what I was offering to schools was design, you know, how do you design a physical environment to support this way of learning. So I then went out of my way to find schools and educators, museums, who were interested in this approach to children and, and learning. And, and I found a few people, uh, and architects too, who enjoyed working in this way. And I think that architects get it, and creative people get it, because that's the way we, we work collaboratively. But um, the school system, then and now is largely mainstream and it's a fairly passive uh, experience for children and it's linear. Um, children love being out in the playground because that's when they're in control. But so apart from being, you know, practicing design, I then started to, well, I wanted to find examples of uh, where this sort of approach was taken here or in other parts of the world, and, and historically. I mean, the most wonderful program of all that probably was in Chicago 120 years ago, doing exactly, you know, this. Um, then in London in the 60s, supported by government policy, fantastic things happened. Um, and then in uh, the north of Italy, in Reggio Emilia, since the 60s, they've been evolving a system now 80 schools and of interest worldwide. Um, and then, as I was saying to you more recently, I've discovered this in Los Angeles, in High Tech High. That's another network of schools that are working in this way. So it, it, it is happening. And I think that um, because now the corporate sector is starting to say, but we're just not getting the graduates from the schools or the universities that we need just talking to Rob just now. Um, they can't uh, think laterally, creatively, they don't know how to work in a team, they, they can't self-initiate, you know, self-manage, all of that. Um, and I think that in the programs that I've worked with in, in schools at various ages where they, uh, they adopt this approach and where they develop long-term projects that, that involve the children's interests, and capabilities and bring it together with the the formal curriculum you know the things that the ideas that society values when you bring that together and you take off all the constraints all the time constraints curriculum constraints and let it flow organically then the, the children and teachers together produce the most incredible work and you know there's not time to talk about it here today but um, it, for anybody who's interested, I'd encourage you to, you know, look at these examples and say, well, it doesn't have to be the way it is in most schools. We can actually, um, we can do the right thing by children that we all want, you know, we want them to be happy and, and effective learners, but also they can get to know one another, you know, they can um, develop trust and respect for one another and for, the, and for adults which, after all, is the basis of a, um, a good democracy. So I think it's a really 
<laughs> Sorry, I got I got into my advocacy mode. I, I told you you'd have to kick me. I mean, I think it's really interesting in terms of like, I mean, how what are those kind of models? Like, what is the sort of, um, you know, is it like Steiner School or is it like kind of? I mean, how does that kind of mm. um, take form? And well. I mean, historically, there are two streams of education. There's the mainstream, which we're all familiar with. Um, you know, it was the same when I did it 60 years ago in London as it is round the corner from me in Ivanhoe. You know, that barely changed. So there's that stream, but then there's this other stream of alternatives. It's much smaller. Um, and as I say, it goes back to uh, Chicago. There's a you know, long, long history of those two developing side by side, but the alternative has had very little influence over mainstream until recently. Um, what was the question? What are, those, what are those kind of models? Like oh, how, Steiner and like Montessori. Yeah, so Steiner and Montessori fit into that, that progressive stream. They're part of that picture um, and they go back a long, long way to Italy and to Germany. Um, the, the difference with them is, and this is getting a bit technical, but the difference with, with those approaches is that they're formulaic. There is a way of doing it, you know, and, and I think that is a bit constricting. What we need, particularly in response to rapidly changing world that we're all living in and all very aware of, is something that can evolve organically in response to the children and... Um, the changing ideas of what might be important, but still hanging on to those really important traditional, uh, you know, traditional culture and um, and skills that that we all need. I think there's a tendency to think that if you go down this path, you're chucking out you know, a lot of things that have been valued, but that really isn't true at all. The idea of like sort of transferring say for you within your own practice, the idea of, of play, I mean, how does that emerge as a kind of, you know, some people change their environment or their context to sort of, to move their practice forward or, you know, I guess through trial, trial and error, they're able to move into sort of kind of new territory. I mean, it's something that you can't really quantify. And we were sort of saying yesterday, in terms of like visual research, it's sort of yeah. still such in a- In your area. Yeah, yeah, in my area, it's still such a kind of, uh, a new form of research that it's sometimes hard to, well, it's an interesting process to kind of try to quantify something that is in part kind of innate and at the same time, is that at the same time kind of learnt yes. as well. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so. Well, it, it, I guess that's why I keep going back to Italy, to Reggio Emilia, because they just evolve. They don't, as we do here, grab a new idea. You know, the new idea might be personalisation or ICT or the latest one is making. So they're all the private schools with lots of money are now setting up making centres. And these are, you know, it, 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 we just leap from one idea to another. Whereas the Italians, and it's a, di a totally different political and social climate, um, much more collective. And that's why it's really interesting to talk about play, because play is about a collective approach to developing an idea. You do it, you know, uh, Armani does it. Um, 
So where was I going with that? It's, it's much more organic. So they, they evolve. They don't leap. They say, well, this is, a, you know, people keep visiting them from all over the world. The greatest educational thinkers, Brunner, um, Gardner, go there regularly. Um, and we go there and we bring ideas. We say, look, we, you know, this is what we do in Australia. And they say, oh, in Australia, you do outdoor play much better than we do. What can we learn from you? So there's you know, a bit of give and take. So they'll say, that's a good idea. We'll try it. But they try it. This is the difference. They try it, they experiment, and then they really seriously evaluate it. So they're observing the children all the time and saying, well, that's sort of a good idea, but maybe if we... And they'll tweak it and then they'll try it again. So it just gradually evolves like a like nature, you know, it is, um, it is evolution. Okay, we're getting ringed out. <laughs> ringed out. <laughs> um, well, thank you. I know that you have a lot to talk to Nassim about, so mm -hmm. I will invite I Nassim on stage yeah. and then... Um, yeah. Amani, Amani, sorry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amani and I also had a very nice chat on the phone um, because when I looked at the list of participants, I couldn't understand how I'd washed up in this actually. Um, so <laughs> these much younger people are doing really interesting things. So as we, no, I looked at a video online. That's right. And then I started to understand, and I got so excited. I really wanted to talk to you. So thank you. Uh, Amani, you've worked in many different cultures yep. and with creative people from many different cultures and as we talked, a number of things came out about the characteristics of play um, and one of them was that thing of kids' ability to keep a game going you know, that, or any, any good game, adults as well. Um, how do you keep it going? And one of the games was that program you did in, in the Maldives um, with people from all over the world. And it, it seemed to me that was an incredible example also of adapting to a very harsh situation, not a harsh physical environment, but a very harsh social and political environment. Would you like to talk about that one? Because I think in talking about that, people understand what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so I've I've done I've made play events and festivals in Europe and here in Melbourne. And this one particular situation that I'm still trying to make sense of of what we were doing and and yeah, because it was it was in Maldives where. Um, me and eight other desi game designers from uh, Europe and America 
we went and we spent 12 days making games uh, um, to play out in the streets and then we made a few different events. It turned out that um, there had been a military coup uh, just before we went and we decided to go there and do it anyway but it we ended up in a very like in a situation where that we were all very unfamiliar with because um, but even though you lived there or you came from there yeah I come from there but a military coup situation it was it, it was the first time in that it had happened in Maldives there was a lot of police brutality on the streets and um, the public was very scared to be on the streets and you couldn't it was you could be you could be um, arrested if you were more than three people at that point. So, um, not good for a game. No, it was something that we were all really unfamiliar with. So it was the first time I think for a lot of lot of us where we were thinking, are we actually putting people in danger by asking them to play? So, and and I think um, in it's. Play is really political when you play in, when you're in public. It's always very political, but in a situation like that, a lot of those social and political aspects was much more emphasized. Um, because I think, especially now with like different political climates you know, changing in in Europe and America and in the Western world as well, um, I think it. Um, you know, we have to kind of think think about it a bit more about like maybe people who look a certain way can't. Um, maybe it's not so easy for um, those kind of people to get playful mm. or play in public than it is for other people. Or well, you you described a number of diff very different games that you developed with others to that very difficult situation. Um, Maybe I mean the one that might be interesting to talk about is the silly banana. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a, that, that was a really interesting one because it it was on all different uh, a lot of different platforms. We had um, it was uh, developed by William Drew and Andrea Hasselea. Will was from London and works with theatre a lot, and Andrea is a game designer from Denmark. Um, and they had a banana costume, and they decided to make something that involved the banana. And uh, so they made a story that there was a banana that had escaped from um, a fruit bowl in the airport, and people had to help save the banana, because then the banana went in a crisis. And, and uh, well, the story developed online, on an online platform, and people could uh, text on their phones, and there were also um, posters on the walls around the city um, uh, telling people about this banana that had escaped. Mm. And it, it was really interesting because it was it was a game where you could where people participated on lots of different levels. It was just maybe like the market the person in the marketplace would give the ban banana a free banana so that was like a, his way of participating mm -hmm. in the game or you know you don't you didn't really have to actively sms or you know i, I play 
in those rules, you could make your own rules about how you... Yeah, and this, this is you know, another characteristic of play, isn't it? That, that, that kids are very inventive in adapting a game to a particular circumstance. And, and the other thing is to keep the game going. I've seen this time and time again with kids, that if, if there's a game going and they, one of them really wants it to keep going... The others might be drifting a bit. They'll think of it something very tricky to get hook them back in again. And, and, and the thing about a number of those projects in the Maldives was that they went on. They had a life beyond your work, didn't they? They were taken up by the community. Am I right? Um, yeah, I think the banana is still around. <laughs> it's made some appearances afterwards. Yeah. We don't know whether it's a like a fake banana or whether it's the real banana. Mm. Well, um, to, to, to bring it home, to bring the story home, um, we were talking about the contemporary context here and that one of our difficulties, both of us, in different contexts, is that we're up against a culture that is now very um, materialistic, consumerist, um, looking for outcomes in education, looking for bums on seats in cultural venues. Now, they're the imperatives that we're working with and also an environment that can be hostile to play, like, you know, if, if skateboarders, we're preventing them doing things. So, um, or, or having to design something so that people can make money out of it rather than the sort of things that... wonderful things that you've done that are just... For everybody's pleasure, aren't they? Well, try, uh, you try and make things that are, uh, uh, make events that anyone can come and join in. Um, yeah, and it, it, it's true about the, for, for example, you build architecture where people can't play in, like you can't skateboard mm -hmm. in, and they, they ripped up a park over there, um, like in the north here. So that they would, so that they could change the architecture to add anti-skateboarding things. That was really recent in Melbourne, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in, I think here it's still pretty easy to go and uh, find a place where you can play. We played and we made um, uh, night. Even even in the night, like nighttime events, some, we made some horror games in Fitzroy Gardens, and we had a lot of people coming to play. What happened then? Um, we had it, we we had a very open um, uh, design process where we just we just asked people who were interested in developing this game with us to come and um, come and join in and contribute. So then we ended up with um, about 20 different designers and and just coming whenever they could. Mm -hmm. And then it just, a game that developed organically. And um, like, we were three main designers who were like trying to keep everything together, but we had architects and, and uh, uh, theater people, sports people, and it, all different kinds of people mm. um, being part of it. And um, we played four weekends, 
in um, Fitzroy Gardens. And we just had to say, okay, we had to stop because every time there could only be 30 people and more and more people kept coming. Mm. But it, it was fun and it was safe. We ran into people who were in the park for different reasons and, and, and lots of possums and it was fun. But now it's, you're it's quite safe. I, I don't yeah. feel worried about making play events here, like in the same way as we did in the, in the Maldives. Um, we've also come across policemen who, mm. if, who have said if they weren't, um, if they weren't uh, on duty, they would like to join in. It's really opposite yeah. situation <laughs> not, in Maldives. So. Yeah, I should say that that one of the reasons that schools have difficulty grappling with these ideas is is this characteristic of play, which is about being unpredictable. You know, you can't. You, most of the stuff in our schools has a predictable outcome, but in play, the essence of it is it's unpredictable and risk-taking. So, and now you're doing a PhD at RMIT. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Um, um, I'm. That's part of the ways that I'm trying to make sense of what I, what we were doing in Maldives. <laughs> so, I'm just trying to. I've been talking, interviewing people who are part of it and just trying to um, take apart the messy situation that we were in mm. to try and make sense of Very what was involved in actually being able to play in that situation and also inviting, inviting people, making people feel like they could play. I think one of the astonishing things that... that I was told by one of my colleagues who's an expert in this area is that uh, children will play anywhere, even in the harshest circumstances, like um, in the concentration camps during the Holocaust or in Ireland during the Troubles, children still played. So the, the motivation to play is so strong that, you, well, as parents we know, you just can't stop it. Um, and you know, I suppose from my point of view, well, what, one of our biggest problems in, in school education is the lack of motivation. So why don't we you know, learn from another area where you, it, it's so clear that kids have a very strong, and, and, and people have a very strong drive to play. Yeah, that I, also, I also heard in, from people in America that they're taking away a lot of playgrounds because it's unsafe. In many schools they've cut so, out play time. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. We have to... Next. Thanks, Mary. Well, actually, there's two people on this one. You're in this one. So do you want to take this one? Is that okay? Do you have with that? Hi. Hi, Manny. 
you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Bruce Gladwin. I'm the artistic director of a theatre company based in Geelong called Back to Back Theatre, uh, which is an ensemble-based uh, theatre company. It's been going since 1987. And Scott is uh, one of the actors in the ensemble. Yep, so I'm Scott Price. How long have you been with the company, Scott? Would you believe it's actually been about 10 years? Whoa. A long time. Yeah. You're a, you're a vintage actor. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to. I was talking to you uh, two days ago. Yep. And uh, you were telling me about how being playful is a really important part of the way that you make your um, make your theater pieces and. Yep. So. Yeah. So, uh, well, the, the company doesn't work uh, with, like, an author uh, or a, a writer, and we don't commission scripts. So the work is uh, collectively authored um, by myself and the actors, and uh, we use a process what we term as self-devised or group-devised, and fundamentally is, like, uh, through improvisation. So we might start with a theme or a um, kind of... A concept or and then through a series of lots and lots of improvisations really isn't it Scott? It's all um, sort of like filmed. Um, on That's a right. Camera. Yeah so the actors are in the studio I might give a brief they do an improvisation we videotape every improvisation as a kind of recording device and capture what basically we're looking for is kind of like dynamic um, that is going to Whole, often, often when you're in the rehearsal room, what you see that holds your interest is will hold an audience's interest in in the theatre. But then to really try and capture that dialogue, um, because it can be quite elusive. You can have an amazing rush of amazing dialogue, and then it can be lost yeah. afterwards. So um, we just use the video as a kind of form of um, documentation. And you know, we so improvisation is a, a main tool, but also we play you know a kind of a lot of games to kind of free ourselves up and yeah. kind of prepare for the improvisation. Um, how else do you think play manifests in the rehearsal room, Scott? Oh, it just has all saying, just, or well, has you all saying, just um, through theatre games, you know, theatre sports, you know, just um, being playful, you know, just around the um, studio. Yeah. Um, you know, look, I think... Um, you know, there's, a, there's kind of like two modes in... There's my kids, so I must be boring. <laughs> They're going... He, he knows nothing about play, that guy. <laughs> We're the experts. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, we, we, there's kind of like two mo modes in the rehearsal room. One is trying to get into this head space of play and the other one is negotiating play. And um, I think the kids are great at it because, you know, if you watch a group of kids... Um, in, a, in a kind of role-playing activity, they'll, they'll kind of be creating the world and playing it out, but at the same time negotiating what that world is. And they're really seamless between the actual play and the negotiation. Yeah. And uh, I was watching my kids with their friends uh, the other day and they were playing this game where it was like a town and someone's playing the mayor and someone's the policeman and someone's running the pub. They've got all these roles. There's someone's running the post office. And then the policeman, the kid playing the policeman goes, just say, I'm the only one with the motorbike, okay? I'm the only one with the motorbike. 
and the rest of you don't have a motorbike. You've only got, and he just paused for a second, and then he just goes, you've only got legs. <laughs> and, everyone just, and then everyone just accepted that, and then they're just back into it, you know. <laughs> and he just walks from one to the other as though he's riding a motorbike, but he's just walking, but they all, they go, yeah, he's got a motorbike. <laughs> and I think in, in the rehearsal room, what, what I'm, as a director, I'm trying to do is to try and keep that, that dynamic between the facilitation and the actual playing as smooth as possible. And, and ideally, for us, we don't quite know what is the facilitation and what is the play. And that's where it kind of gets into really interesting territory. Are you, uh, how big is your group? I mean, it, are you always working together? I mean, you've been working together for 10 years. Yeah. So are you, do you have a group that have been working together for a long period of time? So you have like a community? Uh, it sort of varies, like you get new people, old people. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, it's like one ensemble member. Sorry. Uh, yeah, he's actually been, yeah, thanks. Yeah, he's been around, I think, for coming. It's about 25 years, 30 years. Mark's or? been working with the company for 25 years. Yep. But, so we have an ensemble of six actors, but then we also work with lots of community participants as well. So we might go and run a workshop or we have a group called Theatre of Speed that work with us one day a week. And uh, there are um, 15 people with intellectual disabilities working uh, living in Geelong and they work with us. So um, the kind of pool of people that we work with is quite broad. And often you know, the company's been producing work that's been touring internationally now for like about 15 years. Yeah. And often when we're touring to, you know, arts festivals, etc., then we'll do some form of community engagement where uh, we kind of openly talk about our process and um, invite people in to kind of experience that through a workshop. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're working with, uh, it must be really different when you're working with in, within your own company, and then when you go out and you're trying to get other people involved, um, and and also joining in this playful um, mood. Yeah, like, you well, have to make that kind of occasion. Is there ways that you try and? I, I think in ma making theatre you want there's a some form of engagement with an audience where you want the audience to be playing with you as an you know and I think as well as using play within the devising process we try and you know insert play into the performance so um, there's a couple of works we've made one was uh, small metal objects which was premiered here at Flinders Street Station and it was made for the concourse on Flinders Street Station and. Uh, it was a story about a drug deal that goes wrong and the audience sit in a seating tribune and they have headphones on and um, the actors are playing dealers and um, buyers in this drug transaction and they're very discreetly radio mic'd and blending in with the commuting public on the concourse. And But, you know, implicit in that kind of or situation is the audience know that anyone in the, you know, commuting public could come and intervene in this performance. And it's, so it's a tension that's kind of inbuilt into the performance that kind of gives it a sense of life. And um, so within, you know, hopefully most of our work, we're, we're trying to find that some sort of dynamic that it's not stated in the program, it's not stated in the title or anything, but, you know, as the performance is taking place, the audience can feel some sense of kind of tension that they are too a part of this engagement then they're not just passive but also that they can um they can be 
affect the performance or that the performance can be easily affected in, in multiple ways? I'm trying to picture it. it. It's so Flinders Street Station and the audience is walking around. No, no, the audience is in a seating tribune, so they're fixed in one spot. Yeah. Okay. And there's, you know, 200 people with all headphones all staring in one direction. So you could get off the Frankston train and walk up and to see 200 people all focused in going what? And so, and the and the uh, performers. The are performers, they they're just blending in with the commuting public. So, okay. So, so it everyone. looks like two hundred people all looking at nothing or looking at people commuting, and so and you would get a lot of people just coming up and talking to the audience, going, "What are you looking at? You know, what's what's going on?" <laughs> and uh, or we, you know, we did the show during the spring racing carnival, so we'd get maybe two hundred people oh, coming God. off, holding their stiletto heels and incredibly drunk and just you know, we had people undressing in front of the audience it was oh god <laughs> oh my god and uh <laughs> and so oh you know god. were you were you part of that no no i wasn't no i didn't see <laughs> yeah but um yeah i mean imagine it now it's like oh god mm. Yeah. But there, were, there were points in the, that season where we just got, didn't know what was going to happen and you know like the kind of you know you're talking about the project in the Maldives like we, we had to kind of build for us uh, some sort of like policy and procedure on the run and then basically we got to this point where we went as long as no one is physically threatened or either the performers or the audience will just let that interaction happen between the audience and the commuting public and it was also the commuting public and the actors so and that could literally be just someone saying oh do you know which platform I have to catch the train to Sandringham and ask one of the actors or or it could be someone standing there for an hour and working out who all the performers are and then going yeah I'm going to be a part of this and and oh, inter inter start interacting with the actors and then the actors have to improvise a response back yeah. um so so um so they sort of pitch out okay like you know he's Jim Russell there's um you know such and such and then you know, they just interacted or just say, oh, can I please have your autograph or is that the case? Or? No, it was more, uh, well, you know, uh, I don't know, it just really varied. Like sometimes people would just come up and go, what are you, what are you doing, you know? I know you're doing something, what's going on here? You know, or it could yeah. be that they, that, um, you know, start playing a character, you know, yeah. within it as well. So, um, so did anyone actually accuse them of actual, like, you know, like, Drug bus or today? No, well, we did we did we did do the show in um, Hamburg, and the festival programmed the show just outside the main train station, which was the major drug dealing area oh, in central Hamburg. God. And I think it's really interesting to hear about the different countries also that you have. Yeah, represented. yeah. So it was it, what was challenging about that is that the drug dealers in that area were quite kind of threatened and put out by the fact that there was this kind of intervention in their space and um, and it was uh, that was really the only time that we you know really had to kind of withdraw from the space and um, okay. you know but generally you know what we're looking for in that show is just like a kind of civic space that is quite unmediated like it doesn't have security guards and it doesn't have police patrolling for safety like they have you know in integral to it is this sense that anything possibly could happen there's like and you were um you mentioned about do, doing this in uh, in america yeah it was just very hard in the united states to find physical locations in civic space that wasn't mediated so really it came down to shopping malls 
and but <laughs> then there was always like a couple of security guards in the background to do it and uh, yeah, you know but also that space was kind of had a, this kind of commercial value to it so because it was associated with retail and commercial you know mar marketing okay take that as a note thanks <laughs> Thank you. Great. Who's next? Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thanks. 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 Well, should we get, just get Nat to talk a little bit about a practice first? Yeah, or? maybe do that then. I think I've got like a series, I think, of questions. How many have you got? Well, I've got eight. I've so got four. Great. It's 12. Oh, better. It's, it's like a question a minute. <laughs> Speed dating. Yeah, okay. Um, so I studied sculpture at the VCA. Around, I started around about 20 years ago. And when I got out of art school, I did a um, collaborative project called Natanali where I made art with my best friend that I'd met at art school. And we had some success. And then that split up and I had a baby. And then I sort of stopped being invited into art shows like I had done previously. And there's lots and lots of artists at the moment. There's sort of a supply and demand, some supply and demand issues. Too many artists and not enough art galleries. So I developed a project called Natty Solo com, which is attending art openings and launches and things and taking photos of who's there and then writing, often quite acerbically about what's going on culturally in Australia right now. Great. <laughs> and, and you're not afraid to be critical, are you, Nat? Like you, um, Thank you. You're not afraid of provocation or it seems to be what you're one of the tools that you're playing with? So, I think I was feeling quite frustrated about arts writing, yeah. that it had become very academic, and I really love art and culture. Yeah. But often I was reading reviews and stuff, and I couldn't even make it to the end, just through sheer boredom. <laughs> so, I just thought, well, I think that there's big scope here to be critical, but also to attempt to be entertaining or at least not put your readers to sleep. So, yeah, I thought also criticality is sort of being lost, I think, critical writing about art. More often than not, there's sort of infomercial quality writing about yeah. art and culture quite often. Do you think that's some, something to do with... Sorry, Scott, I'll get... Is that something to do in terms of... In terms of like mainstream media, in terms of reduction of space in in for arts in the paper, or is it just a kind of lack of quality of writing? Um, look, I think mostly people review stuff that they love, yeah. And those really sort of hammering in writing about stuff you don't like is just sort of disappearing, really. Yeah. yeah. And that discourse is sort of the basis of what we do. I think art is a really great place to have a great big fight, you know. And, well, at least take a position and then, you know, people are in opposition to you. And, yeah. you know, may the best man win, as yeah. it were. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
Because the art and the, the stuff that I love seeing really makes you feel deeply about stuff. You know, look, there's a commercialization of stuff going on right now that I think is dangerous. Yeah. Like Easter, Christmas, Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> they keep coming <laughs> all year, don't they? Yep. I did have a series of questions again I want to ask you. So, um, so why did you get into art? What was your motivation? Um, before I was an artist, I was a school teacher. And I really love being a school teacher, but I did find sort of the nine to five grind of just... And also the academic year, it just felt after a couple of years like Groundhog Day. You know, you get the same briefing at the start of the year, come on people, you know. <laughs> and it just wore me down and I, I think I was looking for something else. Got another one, Scott? I do. Um, <coughs> does that make good, good protests for political movements? Oh, I think um, increasingly, as we've got more and more to protest against, that art is really at the moment moving into that arena. But I think that there is some problem that often art, I've noticed, has been called on to kind of solve a lot of the world's problems, I think. And if they want us to solve the problems, they've got to stump up some more cash. Yeah. <laughs> it's not enough cash. That's not <laughs> enough cash. One of the things that's often associated with play, and like, you know, I think looking at just, I was looking at your blog the other night, and it's very playful. Like, it took me a while to actually understand what, what it was. And, and I, just, I don't think you kind of obviously it's your desire not to make it super clear straight away. Like, it's, there's something playful about how, how it should be read. And, um, but that idea of play is often associated with children and it's somehow some sort of rehearsal for adulthood. Or um, Do you, you know, are you, in, in your kind of arts practice and using play now, is it, does it feel... Is it like some sort of projection for the future or for something else that you're rehearsing for or is it some sort of means to an end to get to somewhere else? Or um, I think that artists have a relationship with their art mm. and to keep that playful as much as you can is sort of what you've got to aim towards. Yeah, and how do you do that? Like what... what I'm, I think I, it's I, the way that you um, deal with deadlines. I think deadlines can interrupt a sense of play. Yeah. So stress, you know, and so if you've got a looming deadline, I think that that can mess with stuff. But at the same time, deadlines can be really great for making you pull your finger out. Um, I think to just be engaged with what you do the whole time, but it doesn't, you don't have to be on it all day. That you can do lots of thinking, you know, in the shower or having a swim. You know, yeah. but you're sort of thinking about something that that's worked too. And you can be playful, I think, in your brain. I think you've got to feed... You've got to keep looking around yeah. for stuff that you're interested in doing yeah, and, and keep it a bit new. And when you do become, you know, when those deadlines hit and it becomes very tight and you become quite bound up or I'm talking about myself here yeah. obviously <laughs> what <laughs> what what techniques do you have to just kind of release and reboot again do you 
Uh, I'm really, I think it's got to do with the time of the day. Yeah. You know, so I'm really very optimistic really early. So if I can get up at, say, 6 and be finished by 11, I, can, I just feel really, really good. And then just cruise through the rest of the day. But I'm quite productive at that time. And I think you can play some of those games with yourself. You know, throwing money at a problem always works well. <laughs> the problems can go away. So you can just outsource. Yep. You know, yeah, like, uh, or collaboration is good. Um, <laughs> when, when you go collaboration like that, are you slightly sceptical of collaboration? Or? No, I no? love collaboration, you but do? generally I just prefer telling people what to do. Okay. <laughs> is that because it's the contract's just clearer and then... Yeah, got yeah. I think it's because I'm bossy. Okay. Bossy. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I do love to collaborate, but collaboration takes more time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, of course. You've got to allow for different voices to be heard for the collaborative process. Sort of. Yeah. Oh, you do. Th- you do. Yeah. yeah. I, often, I often think, we're, sorry, this is coming back to me again, but it's your interview. But, <laughs> but it's just, I, I was thinking about collaboration the other day and I go, well, why, why do I have collaborators? And I go, is it just because I want them in the room to affirm my ideas or I'm actually genuinely, you know, and that's the thing about time, isn't it? It just takes time to solicit everyone's opinion and also to kind of try you know in a meaningful way try try all those ideas and not not just kind of dismiss them or, and that, that that does take time i think you know there's something beautiful about group effort that to see the world from a different point of view that's a great you know that's really huge work that art and theater and dance can do yeah. It can really shift your perspective, but you've got to be sort of open to that yeah. and listening out for it. Yeah. You know, oh, I've never thought of that before. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Can we try and get through Scott's six yeah, questions mate. now and how well, probably in the next five, five, five minutes? Um, okay. Um, on that note, um, are computers taking over art? Um, I think. People are clearly spending a lot of time on iPhones. <laughs> in, in terms of, like, filmmaking or... Like, oh, just or in terms of attention span, like, you know, hours in the day. So I think that there's scope there. I don't think computers... No, I don't think computers are taking over the art world. But I think that... Yeah. People have different relationships with computers. Okay. I don't get on with them so well. Okay. Um, oops, I just lost my thing. Uh, i to this up. All right. Do you use publication to make art? And I think you just answered that question. Yeah, I reckon we've covered that one. All right, cool. What mediums do you use to make art? Um, at the moment, I'm using photography and text, so I'm writing a lot. And so I've developed a relationship with words, which I think has made me a better listener. And I'm always looking for stories or things to say. Um, So I guess I'm sort of, I don't know what I would call it. (laughs) Yeah. So so Nat, and we've talked quite a bit intensely about your practice in... 15 minutes but is there anything that you would like to say in terms of like the the theme about play and space and the environment and um i guess 
that I think that lots of the best art and culture throughout history comes out of quite a lot of mayhem and that we have to be very careful to identify that and to maintain some spaces where some crazy shit can go on <laughs> because sometimes it feels like arts organisations try and take that out of the equation yeah. but I think it's a much better proposition to allow for failure because, you know, yeah, it's not that bad if something's not great. Oh, totally. You like, can learn a lot from that, yeah? Oh, you can. You really can. I think, you know, it's just, you know, you can turn... Oh, I had someone by said to me once, you can turn great art into shit art, and um, it's um, quite wondrous. <laughs> <laughs> cool, you totally you. can. <laughs> Thanks, sir. Do you want your drink? Do you want that? Okay, I'll leave it there for the next That was good. Thank you, Bruce and Scott. Uh, we're now welcoming Linda Sproul on stage, and Nat's going to interview her. Hi, Linda. Um, Linda, can you tell us a bit about your art? art career so um hey nat hey linda um what i thought i'd do is i'd pick up on a question that um rob kind of asked me earlier because um there is this kind of amazing contradiction where um i sit before you as the head of education and community programs at Museum Victoria, but what Nat's going to make me talk about is the <laughs> fact that um, for a 15-year period, I was considered to be Australia's most provocative installation and performance artist working in a feminist tradition. Woohoo! <laughs> um, and so how are those two things reconciled? And what um, Rob reminded me of is that I think all artists love the work of artists and are deeply interested in what has gone before. And so in the work that I would make, I would say that I was one of those old conceptualists that really believed in the power of the um, non-object-based art because art should be about ideas that couldn't be consumed by the market <laughs> and manipulated by the market and really um, the value or the power of art actually resided in the body, mind and heart of the person who was experiencing it. And so I now find myself in the fortunate position where um, I get to have three museums and an outreach program and other things like that that um, is about creating space for people to have feelings, memories, reflection and ideas. Beautiful. Um, so I guess my point was that do you think that you do a better job because you used to be an artist? I, I do. So let, yes. So do let, you consider yourself still an artist? Um, it's an interesting question because um, I think we need to be frank about... Um, the things about the agency of the voice that you have on the Natty Solo blog is that no one authorises Nat. She's a free agent. She can say whatever she wants, what comes into her head. 
Um, and when I was still actively practicing as an artist, the one thing that artists have is a voice that is not disrupted by anyone else. Um, I am more than aware that in the museum, the nature of the provocations that I might have done is a different kind of agenda, if that makes sense. But the thing that I will say is um, I believe, and it goes back to some of the things that Mary was saying earlier, and um, all the speakers, in a sense, have talked to, is about this ability to sit in uncertainty. And it made me think, in preparing for this, um, what's the difference between play and games? And um, I understand, Amani, you like disrupting, the, having the rules not as rigid. Um, but I think that I wanted to pull our conversation back to what were the qualities of play. Mm. And I think that um, play is an interesting thing because it's spontaneous, it happens between people, it's circumstantial, it draws on previous rules, but it has no rules. Um, and I think, and it's disruptive. So your blog is disruptive, um, Christian's practice is disruptive, small metal objects was disruptive. That's right, Scott. And so I kind of think that uncertainty and in a, in a world which is becoming increasingly um, concerned with rules unless they're Donald J. Trump, um, but also I think the ability to um, not feel safe to take risk. So the thing that I feel that um, I have an opportunity to do is to create safe and welcoming spaces that elicit some of the playful behaviours that Mary was talking to before and um, Amani was talking to as well. So I think the whole thing about play is it doesn't have an intended outcome. Um, and most of our activities and actions in life are all about um, gaining something. Um, so there. Hmm. Um, so you work in the museum sector. What's, what's big in museums right now? Ah, <laughs> playful museum, Nat. <laughs> Um, which, um, you know, uh, and I, <laughs> I thought I'd risk saying this, Rob, because, you know, what kind of concerns me is the idea that you can sort of legislate play um, <laughs> because it sort of goes against all the rules I've just talked about, which is there are no rules. It's spontaneous, situational and disruptive. And I don't think an investment logic map or a major kind of strategic plan <laughs> is going to make the world more playful. Um, but there you go. Um, but I do think there are some conditions that we can kind of look at that um, can create the circumstance for that to happen. And so I thought that I would talk a little bit about um, the children's gallery that we've just done at, um, at Melbourne Museum because um, the first thing about that, um, which was very liberating, is that um, it's not, um, it's not uh, geared to delivering any cognitive content. Um, it actually asked the whole project team to look at how it might create a place where people would play, but it didn't try to determine what the nature of that play was. But there are some circumstances. So um, say outdoor 
um, in the garden area, the gallery area. Um, of course, um, one of the, the contents is Tidlick the Thirsty Frog, but outside, um, Tidlick drank up all the water because um, he's pretty greedy. And um, so there was a competition to try to get him to let go of the water. So a range of animals told him jokes. And it was actually the eel that had the best gag gnat and he vomited up the water um, and, you know, consequently saved the world. But what's interesting is that there is a large frog there um, <laughs> which is about this big. And um, I've only just realised recently that it's drawn on that great tradition of the spitting fountain in Italy, whereas um, in an unprogrammed way, um, you may be spat upon by Tidlick. And it's just so fantastic watching what happens because first up there's this, my God, I'm wet, what's happened to me? Um, and then there's like, oh, great, who can I go find to kind of get wet is the next thing. And then there's the ones who just really make me as wet as you possibly can. And so one of the unplanned responses is we didn't realise that we would need to have a range of towels and um, other things <laughs> that um, people could kind of put themselves into. The other thing, though, that I've mentioned, I've been thinking about a lot, is um, to, to what are the circumstances under which you'll take that risk to drop the mask or not have the phone. And I'm sure, Marnie, that's something, you know, your work concentrates on. And um, there's been this unintended outcome of soft surfaces in the children's gallery has allowed a range of intimacy that I've never seen before. Mm. So because we had to comply with, you know, um, all ratios and there's very large charts for this. Um, we opted to actually gear most of it with softball surface, um, which then means when people come in, we invite them if they want to, to take their shoes off. And there's also the ways in which the heights of different things are. And it's very interesting watching what's happening in people's body as they get down on the ground, um, they explore, all ages are getting down on the ground. The acoustic quality too, um, we invested in. So I think that as we negotiate the world that we're in, um, we're not reinforced very much either in it being um, haptically uh, safe. I know I've just gone a bit kooky there. Ask me another question, Nat. <laughs> um, I guess... Uh, this is, what do you think about the impact of helicopter parenting on play instincts uh, in kids? Yes, and I, and I, well, I think the helicopter parenting thing goes back to this whole um, risk obsession in our world now. So I think, um, uh, was it Mary, you were talking about people removing playgrounds from spaces or putting children inside, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I kind of um, feel that if you don't find what the limits and edges of your body are, then what that means for how you might kind of uh, poke, poke someone else, et cetera, et cetera. So there's multiple ripple of effects of that in terms of 
what it might mean for inquiry, what it might mean for uh, the confidence to engage another, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I can't, I'm still not sure what has caused this level of anxiety um, in parents because it's, is it, is it some kind of weird evolutionary throwback gene because as we've reduced the number of children we have, um, we haven't got the eight anymore where you can lose a few before they're 12. <laughs> and I'm, so I'm quite serious about that, but that used to be the sense of the philosophy, did it not? Yes. And so now we have these very uh, precious vessels. And there's also part of the helicoptering is about um, concern that they will be prosperous in life. So therefore, you know, and it goes back to Mary's points earlier about education and learning all about being gaining particular outcomes rather than having the ability to play, make connections, see multiple solutions, initiate ideas. I guess uh, finally, is if, can you put into words one thing that you'd like to change about museums to make it better for you and for kids? I think the whole, the wonderful thing about old stately grand lady museums is the fact that um, you know they are a space that has existed over time yep so that's actually really great because you know um, we're the most kind of um, monogamous relationship you'll have in your life if that makes sense you know we're always there for you kind of thing um, but the thing is is um, to be playful and to be able to throw things up against the wall and get out on the floor and try an idea without it having to go through so many processes and systems. Um, instead of um, maybe the concept of the playful museum is not only making it a playful space for the people who come into it, but maybe it should become a more playful space for the people who work in it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Nat. Thank you, Nat. <laughs> I'm now going to invite Rob McGowan on stage and Linda is going to interview him. Thank you. And look, I'll just do an advertorial for um, Nat's blog site, which is if you haven't taken the time um, to uh, search for nattysolo.com, I think that I would um, seriously, seriously um, recommend it. Um, possibly with a glass of vermouth in your hand. Um, so, um, Mr. Rob McLaurin. Linda. Um, would you please introduce yourself and your practice and your concerns for today to these wonderful people? Oh, well, that's a nice, narrow um, uh, starting point. Um, well, I'm uh, part of a multidisciplinary architecture, urban design and interior design yep. uh, practice, MGS. Yep. Uh, with five partners, um, started about 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. I suppose our interests have been um, around a series of values we all mm -hmm. share as uh, partners and, uh, mm -hmm. and practice, and they have been around themes of how do we make a city more inclusive, mm -hmm. um, how do we um, create a creative city, a knowledge city, a connected city, mm -hmm. um, those sorts of uh, themes. They're, 
primarily urban-based yep. um, because we think Australia is primarily urban-based um, in at least as populations. Yep. So, um, um, and they are the issues that have come through our own research as um, uh, needing us as um, creative people to be engaged with rather than passively yeah. um, watch occur. So then, because there's been this theme about risk as an essential aspect of being playful, yep. um, in your in your practice and your interests, where do you where was the time where you felt you took a really big risk that was constituted in these things that we're talking about about uh, creating more playful responses? Well, it's a good question. I think the first risk we took was eighteen months out of architecture school, starting practice, which is a really dumb thing to do. But yep. um, looking back, but um, but. Um, on that um, issue, I think it's it's about challenging paradigms and assumptions. Mm -hmm. the, the idea that um, um, the way we have done things is the way forward. So um, I think it was uh, really by saying that um, as a small practice, we, we couldn't know everything. We actually had to uh, learn from others and mm -hmm. engage others in... Um, firstly, defining what's the right question to ask. Yep. And by asking the right question, then we could um, investigate uh, propositions. And funnily enough, as a practice, it, it probably took me at least 10 years of practice before that light bulb moment really came. So um, uh, when I was doing research on the future Australian city, for me, yep. which was about 16, 17 years ago now, was mm -hmm. really when that came through as a, so, uh, as a, that we had to practice in a different way. So then, if it's not about kind of uh, sitting there repeating the answer that you've come up with, what are the qualities that you need to draw on to form a question? Um, well, we've, we've heard about this issue of collaboration. I yes. think it is um, about engaging wi widely mm -hmm. and and looking at the organism, we're mm -hmm. always interested in looking at the organism yeah. rather than, um, for example, you know, we don't see buildings as um, as objects or as project, um, but rather, I suppose, see um, the um, the program within the place mm -hmm. as completely interconnected things, and the people engage in the program in the place as um, as part of that and then seeing well what are the the opportunities for connectivity um, that um, enrich um, this I suppose both question and solution um, as um, as an outcome we're seeking so and that only comes through engaging yeah. a broader audience in and developing a deeper understanding so then if that's about relationships and collaboration and we keep coming back to the people question, so because you work in built projects, yep. when the ribbons cut and the speeches happen, how have you factored in the continuation of the relationships? Um, a lot of the time it's been about uh, talking to people about how they're using the space mm -hmm. uh, and the places. Um, 
um, after um, a lot of the time it's been about in being involved with the organisations that have um, that make and curate those spaces okay. in an ongoing way. Okay. Uh, so, for example, being on a board of a not-for-profit housing agency, so actually being involved in the day-to-day -day, okay. uh, questions and issues that they're facing and that the residents are, are looking for, or, or as a university architect, not only doing a plan, but then sort of working with collaborators to implement both that plan but also learn, use the plan almost as a, a learning vessel for everybody and a research vessel for everyone. So then if that's a kind of a really strong inquiry approach, you have both your practice but you also are in the academy as an educator. Yeah. So what are the things that get in your way um, in terms of being able to foster those practices based in kind of collaboration and more open-ended inquiry? Look, I think um, part of the um, problem that we're seeing, and it's not only at the academy, I suppose it's um, I'm involved in... Is it the in client a, question? I mean, in, no, I'm involved in an uh, organisation called The Songroom that works yep. at, uh, with, um, I suppose, helping kids learn through the creative arts mm. in um, schools as well. And it's really starting there or even earlier about the idea that where uh, Mary touched on it earlier too and others that we're, we're looking at learning outcomes and measuring learning outcomes rather mm. than around um, the development of, uh, of the tools for resilience mm -hmm. um, etc. So the idea of play um, as a really important way to develop um, uh, social, uh, social skills hand-eye coordination skills, mm. um, um, insight, um, uh, which is a really important yeah. one, and to um, uh, play with paradigms, you know, and really challenge paradigms in uh, different ways. We're losing that early, and then that continues to manifest in, in the institutions where, you know, you're getting paying students with a... Um, that are looking for outcomes. Yeah. Um, uh, you're getting employers saying they want particular skill sets. Yeah. But, I mean, as a practice for us, one of the most important things, well, t the two important things are, would we be prepared to have them home for dinner? Yes. Or do they, can they engage with other people, yeah. number one? But also, can they think? Can they really conceptualise mm. ideas? Because... We remain, in, I think, more strongly than ever in a, mm. in a world that needs the skill to develop ideas mm. um, and to, uh, that are um, directly a response to this um, flux um, that we're dealing with. And um, in, in all the reports now, um, the terrible phrase that's kind of used is they're the soft skills that are required to oh, yes. be successful. Yeah. So being able to collaborate, being able to kind of make kind of conceptual linkages um, in the report world are called soft skills, where I kind of go, aren't they kind of the best life skills you can possibly have? Um, I'm I gonna, think that's right. Yeah. I think, um, and you almost... I see the parallels between the human skills we need and the skills that we... or, or the, the adaptability and, that we need of the city as well. Yeah. This idea that um, we, we, 
you know, we hear all these words, agile, um, <laughs> um, um, and, uh, that we, you know, we all need to be agile. We need to be visionaries, you know, and yeah. we, need, um, we need to be innovative. Yeah. Um, uh, all of these things, and, and they're not necessarily wrong. We need our city to be flexible and, um, um, and supportive of the creative yeah. economies and collaborative and yeah. all these things as well. I mean, they're, they're very intrinsically linked with each other. You know, how do you create a creative city and, an, and a, a resilient city? How do you create a resilient person? Yeah. Many of the same issues are being faced at both levels, really. And then that takes us back to Nat's kind of helicopter parents question. Yeah. Um, I'm going to close that door on that because I thought, you know, to let the, um, the audience kind of have more of a sense of you... Um, What's your favourite uh, project, experience, landscape, whatever, in the world that has elicited a playfulness for you? Um, gee, that's a really good question. And no one will hold you to account. It's, it's only your opinion for this afternoon. It can change by 7 o'clock tonight. Yep. I'll look. The funny things is uh, the funny things are I think they're the the things that are um, the most affectionately held by you often and for me um, um, the beaches that I've experienced as a youth yeah. um, have a very deep place in my soul. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've been very fortunate to travel to some great places and enjoy some fantastic architecture and urban places. Mm. You know, Bilbao is a great city now. Um, I, I love it as a city and the way culture engages with uh, mm. that and how inclusive it is as a city for all ages. Um, but um, as a um, space, I think it's the, the unprogrammed spaces that yeah. I've enjoyed the most rather than the programmed spaces. So then, if you, um, you know, the old magic wand question, if you could exercise any change um, in any aspect of the world we live in at the moment regarding this question of creating uh, sites that uh, elicit play, what would it be? Um, I think, um, well, the big, the big thing about eliciting play is permission. Mm. Yeah. Um, and yeah. when do we have uh, permission? Um, I suppose if um, creative thinking and activity was an important part of the KPIs of the 21st century worker, um, <laughs> um, that would be great. But no, um, for, for Melbourne, um, I think there's got to be um, um, that... Um, I think the big thing would be the transformation in the role of the street. Ah. So if we um, said that the cars are only allowed by permission, mm. um, that would be a um, uh, rather than any other activity. Mm -hmm. If I want a picnic, um, if I want to play a hopscotch, uh, whatever you know, um, I think that you know if you ch if you really turn something on its head, mm. something like that. One, one, one item uh, that might be something that would um, allow a whole lot of stuff to happen. And um, the permission of that, do you think people would 
take up that ability to connect outside? Well, we've we've seen some lovely examples of it. Yeah. Um, the Occupy a car space, yeah. uh, the um, uh, the close the street for the um, street party. Yes, the, that's um, what I was thinking of. Um, yeah. um, as another one, White Night mm -hmm. is a, a great example of how a uh, you change the paradigm of the threatening city for many people, not for mm -hmm. all of us, but for many people at a certain time of the um, the 24-hour mm -hmm. cycle into something that is um, uh, seen as both safe and wondrous and curious and different. Yeah. Um, so um, there's different ways you can um, provide hooks, you know, where people are walking on the road rather than on the, yep. the footpath. And then... Um I think the last closer, because we've got about two minutes, yep, is what did you think you would talk about today and haven't? Um, no, look, I, th I think um, because we're a fair way down in the process, I think we've been... Um, we've lucked out, um, haven't we? Yeah, no, no, I think it's actually... I think it's quite an interesting um, question um, about... Uh, that was touched on earlier that... There's at some point where we're told, well, we're moving from play to the serious um, uh, phase of our lives. And unfortunately, mm. I see it getting earlier and earlier. Mm. You know, kids in VCE are in the serious part of their life. Um, mm. um, but um, the, um, I, I'm interested in how much of what we do and, um, is play mm. and, how much, and playful thinking. Mm -hmm and how much of um, what we do is work, you know. So I'll be, I'll be taking that up with Christian, obviously, but um, I don't think we give enough credit to play in when we're talking about creative mm. thinking and the skills we've learned through play about how to make our brain work. Yeah. Um, and those delightful old-fashioned words like serendipity, yeah. happenstance, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et Subconscious, cetera. what's yes. that, you know? Um, 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 but, yeah, yeah. Yes, not everything's avert. Um, can we uh, thank Rob McGoran, everyone? Well, thank Linda. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Linda. Now I'd now like to invite myself. Yes. <laughs> So are you happy if I stay on this side? Yes, of course. So Christian and I haven't been um, speaking before this, but I've been stalking him. He doesn't, <laughs> um, he doesn't um, realise that. But um, I wanted to, um, um, I suppose, use um, you as a case study um, for the theme of today, really to explore um, how you've... Um, your experiences in growing up, and the um, and the two um, different parts of that. One as the um, uh, son of um, a, um, a military man um, in in an itinerant sort of moving around the country sort of circumstance, um, and uh, one as somebody um, with um, uh, very deep and connected, uh, uh, deep connectedness um, to your father's family in um, the central desert areas and the relationship you had with your grandmother and great aunts at that stage. And, and, um, and then I'll look at um, what you've um, taken from that youth into your, and I won't say work, but into your um, 
uh, what you're doing today. Um, as, because I'd like to explore playfulness, for example, as a theme in uh, some of that. So if we go back to um, um, those beginnings, and um, uh, I might just get you to speak a little bit about um, uh, Christian Thompson today, um, for those who don't know um, you, uh, you at all. But um, um, I'd then like to um, look at this um, uh, um, notion, I, I suppose, have, uh, what have you taken from your childhood? Firstly, in this idea of moving around with your three brothers and family around the country and what that group had to do. Um, and, um, and then um, that idea of um, understanding with your... Uh, when you have gone to those family holidays in the central desert, was there a different way of learning through play that you were taught through your grandmother and great aunts in that um, way? Because you talk about the deep learning that you got mm -hmm. in that space. So over to you. Um, I'm an artist. Um, I sort of work across mediums, photography, performance, sculpture, sound, installation, music. Um, I sort of do a bit of everything, really. I get bored quickly. Um, yeah, I sort of grew up in the military. My father was in the um, Royal Australian Air Force. Um, so we pretty much moved every two to four years for my entire childhood and lived in... Um, I say some of Australia's premier backwater towns. <laughs> um, sort of um, Wagga Wagga, <laughs> Raymond Terrace, um, Darwin, um, Oki, Toowoomba, just these random yeah, yeah. places. Um, and it was probably, um, you know, kind of a, at the time, probably like not the most enjoyable thing for a kid because you sort of require, you know, you sort of yearn for stability and also in the military all the houses are sort of built to look the same so every time you move you do, you're in a different location but the house is strangely a sort of shadow of the last one um and yeah i mean i think it was um i sort of remember really distinctly kind of going to a school and kind of surveying the the crowd of kids and you know this is like when I was like 11 years old and kind of um, learning to adapt really quickly and sort of look at the, the crowd of people and go, oh, that's the group that I identify with. So I'll kind of not mimic them, but kind of, um, you know, sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of adopt their way of being. So it was just a way of kind of, um, I guess, sort of um, adapting very quickly. And that has now sort of been a kind of template for my entire life. <laughs> and I haven't really stopped moving for, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been living in, I was lived in Amsterdam for three years, lived in uh, Oxford for three years, and now I sort of live between London and Melbourne. Um, I was actually chatting to Mary and saying I sort of feel most at home at airports <laughs> because it's sort of, it's sort of the, um, the feeling of... Uh, the prospect of discovering something new, and I think that's a, a state of being that I was used to um, 
very comfortable uh, in occupying that space. So going to that uh, time, those family holidays in the central desert, I mean, you, you've clearly um, developed a very strong identity. Um, drawing on that, um, um, I suppose that um, both those times and that lineage, um, would you like to just talk about, I mean, how did you... Um, your grandmother and great aunt get you engaged in those stories? Well, I think it was um, the kind of, even though we lived in all of these different places, Barcaldon was kind of the um, one sort of constant place that we went to uh, at least three, three or four times a year. And it's actually 13 hours inland from wow. Toowoomba, where my parents live now, which is kind of insane that you know, you get up at five o'clock in the morning and arrive at five, you know, six o'clock yeah. in the evening. And um, it's just, um, it's quite a, a sort of pilgrimage that we still do now. Um, and it's interesting. I think my father's family were kind of like so far away from everyone that it, it was a, that people sort of nurtured a kind of very sort of... Um, semi-traditional way of life and so um you know we would just pack up the car with all of my cousins and literally just go bush for like two weeks and literally just live in the bush and we just took flour water salt and that was pretty much it and everything else was just um sort of bush food like yellow belly and um um goannas and witchy grubs and yeah yeah, and how were <laughs> stories shared? Um, well, it was really interesting, I think, because when I studied, when I started studying art, um, my great aunt was really sort of um, encouraging, whereas my father was like, oh, ah, what's that going to get you? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, so we would take my artistic experiments home and we would sort of... Uh, sort of make a makeshift sort of exhibition space, which was basically the ute, the, the, um, the boot sort of folded out and then with the artwork sitting on it and everyone would come around and kind of critique it <laughs> in, the, in the middle of the bush. And then my dad would um, get some nails and hammer it <laughs> to the uh, kitchen wall. Yep. <laughs> Quite a um, uh, installation <laughs> process. Um, yeah, and sorry, what was the question again? Well, really about um, how were stories communicated to you as a child? Oh, yeah. In, those in that Well, we would just literally go to my aunt's house and they would make a giant uh, pot of tea, which is literally, literally like this huge. And we were sort of like, you know, kids were sort of to be seen and not heard, like get out and play in the you know, yard or whatever, we could come in for like an Arnott's biscuit or a cup of tea or something like that. But essentially we just were running riot in the, yeah. in the bush. Um, and yeah, that was kind of a tradition really. We'd just go to my aunt's house and they would just recollect stories about members of our family who weren't even alive, but they would sort of be talking about them as if they'd just seen them the yeah. previous day. So there was this sense that... Um, sort of, you know, tradition of just telling stories which was just very much part of my yeah. um, upbringing. 
So if I go to um, your work now um, and you describe in your CV a range of themes that you're interested in, you know, um, identity, sexuality, um, um, memory, um, etc. Um, the a lot of the work could be described as um, addressing contentious ground, um, but is imbued with. You could say it is imbued with a playfulness. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested in your um, use of. Uh, whether that is a conscious thing for you to um, use playfulness as a as a way to hook or not, um, would you like to just talk about maybe talk about a bit you know using some examples, you know playfully play, play, playfully paint a picture of uh, some of your work for the audience perhaps and uh, and then just um, talk a little bit about that. Well, I'm a kind of '90s child. Yeah. And we sort of cultivated our identities through either having an older sibling who knew the cool stuff or through street press or um, hanging out in record stores or going to music festivals. It was a very much more kind of, and it was a sort of around a time of sort of culture jamming. So everyone was trying to sort of cultivate their own little unique identity and, you know, sort of like, oh yeah, I knew about that band like way before even before they became mainstream, I sort of knew about them. But there was this sort of competitive, friendly yeah. kind of competitiveness. And this was before the worldwide interwebs. So it was a much more kind of, um, it, was, it was a kind of preoccupation in some ways. And I think there was this thing about hybridizing things to sort of create your own unique new form. And I think that's just something that um, was sort of symptomatic of my gener generation. And that's something that's kind of... Um, emerge through my practice. So I'm always interested in um, sort of unusual and unexpected combinations of themes and um, uh, references. And I don't really work in a studio. I kind of, I prefer to just be like, um, I would just go to the pool or sit in a cafe or whatever. It's like this. my studio is really in my head and I'm constantly kind of, um, uh, I guess I'm a bit of a bower bird, so I'm always kind of sort of going, oh, well, do you know, I like that, or I like a little bit of this, and blah, 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 and then things will just kind of manifest and sort of percolate under the surface, and then when it feels like the idea has kind of worked itself through, then it's quite a kind of uh, impulsive urge to it. It's now this is the time to make this work. Whereas, you know, there are some ideas that I've sat on for literally years and years and years and it's just never felt like the right time to make that work and then all of a sudden I think it's something about zeitgeist I think it's something about the kind of temperament of of the mood of the kind of culture at that time and so for me that that's also something that's very sort of innate and visceral it's kind of like no now's the time to make that work and it's not a a thought, it's just an impulse really. So it's sort of drawing energy from those external sources that prompts the, the act of making or, or active um, expressing. Mm -hmm. um, well I think the series I did with the flower 
yeah. dresses. I mean, that was a series that I kind of been working with those themes. I'd been making giant corsages and they had really kind of become part of my lived experience. So do you want to just uh, describe those a little more for the audience so that they can... Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, it's a series called Australian Graffiti that I made in 2007 and it's a series of sort of self-portraits where I'm wearing um, garlands that are made of uh, Australian native flowers. Um, and there's one image which is a hood, a hooded figure that has a kind of um, a red um, black gum eucalyptus flowers in the, in the face, which is yeah. quite, sort of a lot of people know that yeah. particular work. Um, yeah, and that was also just trying to work through ideas of, it's like, okay, if I'm going to take a position in my work or what do I want to say or what am I trying to communicate, for me, there's sort of alignment with the natural world. And maybe that actually yeah. comes from growing up in the bush yeah. as well, is having that, um, that kind of uh, physical and also mental space to think about... Um, uh, think about my work well I was interested in that um, issue of um, I suppose in, in a recent uh, when you were doing your PhD at Oxford um, um, there was the uh, expo uh, exhibition on the artifacts that had uh, Oxford had collected uh, from indigenous peoples uh, here mm -hmm. um, um, and I was struck by your um, your need just to look at the work for a long period of time. And then you said that it was subconscious how you needed to respond to this. And I, I was intrigued there as to how much is play, letting the mind play uh, un, unconstrained versus feeling I've got to produce a task. And it's, it sounds from even what you've been describing today that a lot of your work is trying to let your mind make loose associations and just see how those things become something. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not... My mind just works like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could turn it off sometimes, yeah. seriously. It's like just clock... You can't clock out at five. It's like yeah. it's just constantly... Um, happening um, but yeah I mean I think as an artist you have to trust in your you know you cultivate a, a process and you know that that's how you work um, I guess for in an academic context it was like I had to qualify it my process through placing it in a, a historical um, theoretical canon which was uh, an exercise in itself. And it was, I think, really, you know, uh, it was interesting to go from um, a visual um, studio practice perspective where it's all about reducing things to their essential form, whereas the theoretical interpretation is much more about draw drawing things out. So you're really wearing two hats kind of simultaneously. But I did know when I did the series We Bury Our Own at the Pitt Rivers Museum at Oxford that it was much more about you have to trust in your innate processes as an artist and that the work will just emerge naturally. And it's hard for things not to emerge when it's just such powerful kind of... Um, uh, material. Material, yeah. yeah. And it was, you know, it was intense. It was like being in England, going to this museum and looking at... Um, this voyeuristic gaze, this kind of ethnographic 
um, yeah. yeah, it was kind of, I, every time I would go there, I'd leave and felt like I'd been hit by a truck. So the idea of carrying around photos of deceased people just felt really morbid to me. Yeah. It's like, uh, I don't want the, I want that to sort of go into my subconscious and just emerge. And the really early experiments for that series are completely different to the actual work that emerged at the end. And that was just because it just naturally um, and organically certain aspects and elements emerged as, as essential, um, you know, visual cues or the palette or whatever. So, yeah. Yep. Fantastic. I think we've been, we've been belled out. So I think you're wrapping up. So thank yes. you very much, Christian. Thank that you. was terrific. Cool. Thank you, everyone. I'd just like to thank our speakers, Mary Featherston, Amani Nassim, Bruce Gladwin and Scott Price, Nat Thomas, Linda Sproul, and Rob McGarren. Yes. <laughs> it's really interesting just listening to everyone um, this afternoon and speaking about the idea of play. And sort of what I got from it is that in most... I think that everyone touched on this idea of creating contexts and spaces that actually facilitate the idea of play, whether that's, you know, Mary's idea about different forms of education models or making video gaming more accessible through different formats, whether it's SMS or um, online platforms or, um, and Nat's acerbic commentary on the art world, which is definitely, uh, gets people thinking. <laughs> um, I think there are lots of different entry points and obviously I think the idea of play is something that's still very relevant and um, something that is not as abstract as we think, that actually play is a really important part of a healthy and uh, productive society. So thank you so much for coming. <laughs>